and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Victoria Bond to the program today. Victoria is a poet and teaches writing at the City University of New York. She and T.R. Simon co-wrote the award-winning middle-grade novel, Zora and Me, in which a young Zora Neale Hurston and friends must solve a murder in her hometown of Eatonville, Florida. In an unusual move, T.R. Simon wrote the second installment, Zora and Me, The Cursed Ground, and Victoria wrote the recently published final book in the trilogy, Zora and Me, The Summoner, which is published by Candlebook Press. Victoria, how did the idea come up to cast Zora Neale Hurston in her childhood as a major character in your trilogy, Zora and Me? That's a layered inquiry. Let's so peel that onion. I'll, yeah. <laughs> so I'll start by saying that the Zora and Me trilogy is actually co-authored. My co-author and I, T.R. Simon, we wrote the first book together. And then Tanya wrote the second book alone, The Cursed Ground. And then I wrote the third book by myself, the summoner. So Tanya has a background in anthropology, and I have a background in creative writing. And in the early 2000s, my goodness, maybe 2005, 2006, I had written a novel that was really, really horrible. It was it was just kind of so breathtakingly bad. <laughs> And Tanya and I were very good friends. We had worked together in publishing. I had since left that job and actually went back to school, but I gave Tanya the book to read. And Tanya read it and said, you know what, Vicki, this is pretty horrible. And I said, yeah, I know. Uh, but there was a silver lining. And she said, you know, but you do a great job with kids. You have some characters in this book and they're young. And when they take center stage, those are the only parts of the book that actually work. And I thought, huh, really? And she said, yeah. And I have an idea. <laughs> I have an idea for casting Zora Neale Hurston, the anthropologist and the novelist as a kind of girl detective. And you can write kids. And I have this idea. Do you think we can get something together? And you know, that very night, we plotted the first novel in the series. And because it was the early 2000s, and Google Docs didn't exist, I actually took it on myself. I said, look, you know, I'm kind of in the habit now of sitting down to write, like, I think I can try to keep it going. I'll just write the manuscript. And that's what I did, which is crazy now. So when I was done with the manuscript, I just said, here, Tanya, it's done. And she was like, oh, really? Wow. Okay, great. And then she had it for a few months. And then she added characters, changed stuff around, you know, wrote stuff, took stuff out, and then she sent it back to me. So that was how we wrote the first book, which is just, again, I'm surprised by it because I don't think that's how it would happen now. So why Zora Neale Hurston? You know, if she didn't exist, you would have to invent her. She was born in 1891 in Alabama. Her parents, John and Lucy Hurston, were really kind of upstarts and really ambitious. And they decided that they were going to move to this all-Black incorporated town in Florida called Eatonville. And Zora is a tomboy. She's a bright little girl. She's a reader. She's, you know, just takes in, eats up the world around her. And her life kind of exists in this kind of 
Edenic place insofar as being a Black person growing up in the Jim Crow South, right? Zora grows up as the daughter of the mayor, which is actually a plot point in the trilogy finale. Her father actually becomes mayor of this town. She grows up seeing Black people in the, you know, the early 20th century being business owners, being physicians, you know, being landowners, and really making their way in the world as best they can. And that Zora was just such a genius in her own right, and that this genius gets planted in this place, you know, is just really one of history's happy accidents. I don't know if Zora Neale Hurston would have been Zora Neale Hurston if she had grown up in any other place. So when Zora's mother dies, the third novel, I kind of switch around the dates a little bit, but Zora's mother dies when she is 13 and she goes to a boarding school in Jacksonville after that. And she has a very difficult relationship with her father and her father doesn't pay her boarding school bill. And after that, you know, Zora is pretty much on her own. And there are about kind of 10, 11, 12 years that are kind of missing from the historical record. You know, Zora writes that she was a maid in a theater company, that she did some work in a circus. So really, she's kind of this traveling, you know, domestic worker. And when she shows back up on the historical record in a substantial way, she is starting high school in the Washington, D.C. area. And she lies and says that she's 10 years younger (laughs) than she actually is so she can get a free high school education, right? When I think of it, it's, you know, almost kind of like a silly kind of rom-com. You know, there are all these movies where there's a character who's much older is pretending to be younger. (laughs) And that like Zora Neale Hurston really lived that. And from graduating from high school because she lies and says that she's 16 and not 26. She goes to Howard and then she becomes the first black graduate of Barnard College in New York City. And though she's developing as a fiction writer, writing short stories, writing plays, she's really focusing and working on her anthropology this whole time. So I think to get back to your initial question, you know, why Zora Neale Hurston? I think my co-author, Tanya, having a background in anthropology, you know, just felt like who are the people, who are kind of the, the detectives of humanity, of the human personality. And that was really what Zora was in her anthropology. She really dedicated so much of her life and work to recording the stories and the customs of African-American people, of Black people in the Caribbean. And I have just found working with her and on her using some of her work as a kind of starting point or kind of springboard for the events and the details in these novels has just been so much fun. And it's just been so intellectually stimulating working on someone who was just an amazing 20th century character and also just such a a deep writer and scholar. Now, in dealing with the early years of a life of a writer who is as esteemed and important as Miss Hurston, 
how do you walk that line between valorizing her and presenting her as a person with complexities and flaws as we all have? You know, I think Zora, in my reading of her, never presented herself as anything other than a, a real live human being. I think that in some of the portrayals of Zora, you know, of her time, of her contemporaries, she's often portrayed as this kind of life of the party, as this person that knows kind of, you know, every kind of Br'er Rabbit story that you can think of, you know, just this kind of larger than life storyteller. But in my experience of Hurston as a reader, just always felt from her the deep grief and wisdom that she carried with her from the time her mother died until she herself dies, you know, penniless in Florida, largely anonymous in the early 60s. So I guess for me, she wasn't necessarily tempted to valorize her because I always felt her humanness. And I think the thing that we really wanted to communicate in the series is that her genius is very much the result of her humanness. You know, how curious she is, how sometimes how short-tempered she is, you know, those are all the things that made her someone who, you know, didn't see a a barrier that she felt like she couldn't jump over, cross over, knock down. At the same time, I imagine that it might have been hard to be Zora's friend. (laughs) 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 Yeah, because, you know, people that have such big ideas and have such deep wells, I think sometimes these folks expect a lot from people. And they sometimes don't know where the boundaries are. And, you know, I think that those relationships with people that are genuinely larger than life sometimes can feel like they can swallow folks up. So I think that was something that Zora dealt with. And that was in part why in this trilogy, we invented our narrator. So our narrator, her name is Carrie, and she's Zora's best friend. And each of the novels are largely told from her perspective, though my co-author T.R. Simon takes a slight detour in the second book, bringing in another narrative voice. But we invented Carrie because we wanted to give Zora the friend in our books that she didn't actually have in life. Telling stories about a master storyteller must be kind of daunting in a weird meta kind of way. You know, I think that's why we had to have Carrie the narrator, you know, to speak about Zora and of Zora and be with Zora in a way that allowed us to kind of pull the camera back and kind of look at Hurston's personality, look at the personality of the place that raised her Eatonville, while also giving ourselves some some room to try to figure out what stories that we wanted to tell, not only about Hurston, but about the African-American experience, more in dialogue with Hurston than anything else. So I think that's why the narrator, Carrie, was essential to this project, because we certainly couldn't write it as Zora Neale Hurston herself. That would be insane. But I think having the friend tell the story 
you know, gives us again, some leeway and some room to kind of fill our own shoes as storytellers, while also kind of playing with a lot of things in African-American tradition, you know, stuff from Hurston's own writings, stuff from Hurston's contemporaries, you know, throughout the books, more so probably in the first book, I had fun, you know, writing like little songs and ditties. There's a singer who's murdered in the first novel. And, you know, when I was writing kind of the song he sings to Zora and her friends when they meet, I was thinking of Langston Hughes. Right. And, you know, there are different plot points in all the books where I think both Tanya and I are thinking of, again, stuff that Hurston herself wrote. So I think in the second book, The Cursed Ground, which is really a ghost story about the history of Eatonville and about slavery. You know, that book is very much in dialogue with Hurston's own anthropological work called Barracoon, which was the account of the last person from Africa known to be sold on American soil. So there are all these kinds of ways that our books are kind of speaking to Hurston and speaking to African-American traditions and history. You know, I think one thing that has been kind of exhilarating working on these books is just trying to figure out how to write different kinds of mysteries, <laughs> <laughs> which was something I never anticipated I would do as someone with an MFA in poetry, right? So the first book is really a, like a straight up murder mystery. Again, the second book is a ghost story. And in the third book, I tried to kind of write a, a zombie story that wasn't necessarily a zombie story. So the trilogy plays with a lot of stuff, including, you know, the tropes of the mystery and horror genre. It seems like an unusual approach that you and Tanya collaborated on the first novel and then each wrote a solo book coming after that. Why did y'all approach it that way? You know, we just couldn't decide on the same story. You know, Tanya was really into the past of Eatonville, and she really wanted to tell a story about slavery, you know, especially because this is such a large chunk of Zora Neale Hurston's scholarship, you know, tracing folklore, tracing stories from slavery, and of course, you know, writing this book, Barracoon. On my end, I was just more kind of interested in the Eatonville of Zora's time rather than the Eatonville before her time. And I was also fascinated by the relationship of Zora's parents. One of the first books that I read by Hurston when I started doing this research was Jonah's Gordvine, which is Hurston's first novel. And it's really about the life of her parents, specifically about the life of her father. And she had a difficult relationship with her father, as I've said, and I was just really kind of floored as a writer reading that book to see this kind of fair and beautiful treatment that she gives her father as a character, irrespective of, you know, what her feelings may have been for her father in her real life as his daughter. So, you know, I was just so moved by the kind of subjective objectivity that she showed her father as a character that I felt compelled to explore, you know, the relationship between Hurston's parents. 
So when you went back and read her work in this different light, was it like kind of trying to put together a more biographical picture of her from her fiction and her nonfiction writing? You know, that's an interesting question. I think I've been more interested in the kind of the psychological, emotional portrait of Zora the young person, Zora the kid, Zora kind of the adolescent. So I think for me, it's been more reading her autobiography, Dust Tracks on the Road, reading her novels, reading her anthropology, and kind of following the clues that most interested me and kind of putting those clues together to create this portrait of Zora that exists in our trilogy. You know, it's funny, I never felt very bound up by the biographical details as much as I wanted to try to be true to the nature of Zora herself. And I think kind of the invention, I think I have, and I share this with Tanya, of kind of the Black girl genius. So in a way, it never occurred to me or I think to us that we could go wrong. (laughs) I think our intentions were kind of so earnest and so decent all the way through without, you know, being aware or conscious of that. No one sits down and says, I have earnest intentions, right? I'm writing this book in an earnest way. But I think we did that And some of the stuff about the biography and whatnot never really came into question, though I do kind of stretch years and change years and kind of change characters, make them a little bit different than they are in Hurston's work or in Hurston's autobiography to match the universe that we've created in the Zora and Me trilogy. When we think back on other child detective type stories like Encyclopedia Brown, the Bobsy Twins mm-hmm. and everything like that, uh, mm-hmm. to misuse the, the term non-overlapping magisteria between <laughs> the adult and child worlds, <laughs> the adult world is very much a part of these stories and the real life consequences of being African-American in a country controlled by white people who have no concern for their lives is mm-hmm. very real. Well, each of the mysteries in these books really hangs on a issue of racism, right? So the first book is, again, it's a murder mystery, and it's unclear, right, who the villain is. Is it a monster? Could it be a person? Who was this man that came to town? So a lot of the novel is playing with how do we know what something is? How do we know who anyone is? And that speaks, and I don't want to, you know, spoil the book, but it speaks to the racial duplicity, you know, phenotypes, whether or not a Black person can pass for white, and so forth. It just seemed natural. If you're writing about someone like Zora Neale Hurston, then it makes sense to write about real issues that she experienced that she wrote about in both her novels and in her anthropology. In the second book, again, it's really about slavery and the history of land ownership, which I think is something that has come more to the forefront in people's kind of cultural consciousness of racial history in the country. 
And in the third book, really, I'm trying to go at so many things <laughs> kind of at once. So a quick summary of the plot is there's a kind of old eccentric man who dies and his body is grave robbed and he's an eccentric. He has told Zoran Carey that he believes himself to be a zombie. So when his body comes up missing, there's the assumption that's easy for the kids to make is that was he a zombie? Maybe he was. He told us he was. And for me, that came out of kind of two kind of issues. One of them is very specific to Hurston herself and her anthropology, because she actually did some work on zombies and voodoo. The other piece of it is that I was really interested in the history of medical research. Mm -hmm. And while just kind of thinking through this book, just kind of going from kind of article to article, from book to book about, you know, kind of the, the history of grave robbery, robberies. I discovered that in the late 19th century, with the rise of medical schools and medical research, that grave robbing became such a common thing. And it was, you know, so sacrilegious in nature that there started to be laws put into place to barring a grave robbery from white cemeteries. And what this meant is that Black cemeteries, places where Black people were buried, became almost exclusive targets for medical research. And there was, you know, an account that I read, and actually, I wish I could remember the name of the scholar who does work on Black doctors and Black medicine at the end of the 19th century. And in some of this scholar's work, there was an account of corpses of the enslaved actually being stored in barrels of whiskey and shipped from the South North to medical schools. And I just thought, my goodness, like who, like do people know that like the lion's share of medical research and, you know, the 19th century, early 20th century was done on black people. <laughs> and I thought I have a chance to try to get at this issue with kids why not go for it? You know, the, it was such a strange, macabre, horrible dimension of racism reaching beyond the grave that I wanted to try to explore it in some way. A few years ago, we have a, had a Mississippi novelist on Book Talk named Matthew Gwynn, and mm -hmm. he wrote a novel called The Resurrectionist. Is based on how the University of South Carolina's medical school did medical research in the mm -hmm. 19th century. Right. And it was about an African-American man who was forced to rob graves in order to right. supply the, the research at the hospital and the, mm -hmm. uh, the medical school. Yeah, these stories are just so grim. And what makes them all the more grim is that they're real. <laughs> that this really happened. And, you know, I just thought in a mystery novel for young readers where Zora Neale Hurston is the protagonist, right? I have a lot of ways I can go at this. And because Zora worked on zombies, I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try to go for it. Another part of the plot that's connected to Zora Neale Hurston's actual work is, well, I guess I'll just, you know, say in the late 1930s, 
Zora was working on zombies and she was in Haiti and she actually wrote their eyes were watching God in Haiti, you know, really fast, just like in a matter of months, which is just insane. But while she was there doing this research on zombies and voodoo and hoodoo, someone calls her and says, Hey, Zora, you know, there's a woman at a local hospital and she's back from the dead. She's a zombie if you're interested in this, you should go check it out. And Zora's like, what? Are you kidding? And it turns out this woman, her name was Felicia, and she had been buried in 1917. She died. She had been buried. Her family, you know, had the funeral. And I think it's 1936, this woman reappears and her family confirms that it is actually her, but they have no idea what has happened to her between the time they thought she died and the time that she reappears. And, you know, she's a very kind of broken woman. She can't speak. Her eyes are mostly closed. You know, she twitches and fidgets. And Zora takes a picture of her. And, you know, for your listeners, you can Google Zora Neale Hurston zombie Felicia photograph, you know, and the picture will come up again. It was so grim to think what was this experience of these lost years, right? And Zora doesn't find out. No one really knows what happened to this woman. But the fact that Hurston was able to take a photograph of it, something that could mark the loss, right? Something that is the presence for the absence is this photograph of this broken woman. And I just thought, I want to try to work that in (laughs) to this book too, right? I have this idea about Zora Neale Hurston and a camera, and I want to try to get it into this third book. So I guess that's just to say, you know, a lot of the process of figuring out the plot of these books has kind of been cherry picking small or not so small details from Zora Neale Hurston's life and work, and then kind of spinning them, transforming them in a way that both suits, of course, a story, but also kind of speaks to the things that I find really interesting and fascinating about Zora, about history, and really about the African-American experience. And the seemingly supernatural makes an appearance in each of the books as well. Mm -hmm. And kind of our intermediary into that world is old lady Bronson. She's a Mm -hmm. conjure woman in the Ozarks. We know them as kind of granny women. And she has this deep knowledge of folk (gasps) medicine. Well, you know, in so many accounts of plantations and in slave narratives and a of histories of the American South's enslaved people, there's often this character that pops up and it's this enslaved woman that was also a medicine woman, also a midwife, also someone who knew how to tend wounds of both whites and blacks. And this conjure woman, this medicine woman is someone that is really deeply trusted by the entire community, often both black and white. So Given that we're writing these novels about the African-American experience and there's the real life person Zora Neale Hurston involved, 
we couldn't not have this figure in the world of these novels, especially because we are kind of playing with speaking to, you know, mystery and horror tropes. The figure of the conjure woman takes on, I think, a slightly different feel when you're thinking of her in a kind of a feminist framework as well. And I think these books are very much about how girls and women are navigating a world that at some points embraces them, at others tries to shut them down. And I think given that's kind of part of the heartbeat of these books is really wanting to write a book about a girl, about a Black girl, for young people. We had to have this character in the, in the universe of the trilogy to kind of make it true <laughs> to, I think, the experience of you as a reader, of me as a reader, but then, you know, also just to the, the kind of American, African-American kind of hoodoo, voodoo, magic tropes of the stories that so many of us know and love from our lives and our family members, but also, of course, you know, just from the kinds of stuff that we like to read. Speaking so passionately about women and feminism, let's talk about a boy. Yeah. <laughs> Teddy makes up the third of this group of childhood friends. You know, Teddy was so important to have in these books. And in part because we wanted to write a boy that's not just okay with girls, but is best friends with girls. We're writing about a time and a place where at the same time, people of different genders are very much, you know, circumscribed. What they can do, what they can't do is so dependent on gender, on sex, at the same time, right? You know, kids just grow up with each other. You're a girl, you have a neighbor that's a boy, you are friends. And you're friends with each other because of and in spite of your differences. And in a rural community, we're often boys and girls grow up doing the same kinds of work with the, you know, the same kinds of responsibilities, it made sense to us that Zora and Carrie would be friends with a boy and that this boy would be decent and have ambitions and would make for a good character, a good partner in crime. I think in the third book, one thing that I did try to hit on is that because he's a boy, irrespective of race, he has a better shot than Zora and Carrie do at pursuing his ambitions and living his life on his own terms. And that that's something that Zora starts to grapple with. She's like, hey, wait a second, we've been equals all along, right? Now we're at this age where I can see you really do have a leg up and you have a leg up that Carrie and I don't have. And it's just because we're girls and you're not. So I felt like as the kids got older, that would be something that I'd have to write that into the book. In a bit of small worldism, just this morning, I read in the paper, Meharry Medical College in Nashville yeah. has just announced a program with Memphis 
in order to encourage more African-American students to pursue medicine as a career so they can come back and serve in Memphis so people will have people they can trust inside the medical community here. Right. And, you know, and Teddy has an ambition to be a doctor. And, you know, that's the medical school that is mentioned (laughs) in the third novel because it was a school that had Black students, right? So this is, you know, again, at the same time, medical research is being done on Black bodies. It's also amazing that, you know, Black people are entering the doors of higher education and are becoming doctors and pharmacists at this time in much larger numbers, of course, than had been seen before. So, I think that that was kind of another kind of fun thing with old lady Bronson, who's kind of this medicine woman, this conjure woman, you know, and then there is in the world of the trilogy and he's a character from Zora's autobiography, you know, then there's Dr. Brazel, right? So he's kind of the learned schooled physician and kind of the more conventional sense, whereas old lady Bronson is kind of the healer in a more, in an older tradition. So it was funny and fun to kind of have Teddy who's the, you know, the, literally the boyfriend in air quotes to the girls. And he does become Carrie's kind of beau in that regard to kind of have him kind of walk both sides of this kind of this kind of more conventional, traditional, you know, go to medical school, get proper training. At the same time, he is curious about what it is old lady Bronson does and how she does it. The books are set pretty much at the turn of the 20th century, just a few years after. And while this is a very rural community, agriculture being one of the major ways to uh, earn a living there, mm-hmm. modernity is coming. And we see that with the horseless. <laughs> you know, Stephen, I had such a time trying to figure out what to call an automobile. <laughs> You know, like, can I call it a car? Can I call it an automobile? Do you call it a vehicle? And, you know, people called them horselesses because it was a carriage without a horse. You know, I just really wanted to get that in the book because times are changing. You know, another thing that was really haunting to me from Zora's novel, and this is something that happened in real life, Jonas Gordvide, is that Zora's father, John Hurston, ends up dying in a car accident. Hmm. So that was something that I wanted to kind of strangely allude to. You know, most readers of the book won't know that, but that was something that always was in my mind as I was writing about the cars and John Hurston using his horseless as a kind of status symbol is that this is a machine. This is a piece of technology that will literally be the vehicle for his death. But in the world of the novel, you know, it's a status symbol that gives him, you know, this sense of having more being more than some of the people in the town may have expected him to be. So this is the third book in a trilogy. What does the future hold for you? What's your next writing project? 
Well, you know, I am working on more historical fiction, more mystery-oriented historical fiction. I spent a lot of time working on these books, thinking about these books with my headspace being in Florida. And I am from New Jersey, and I am now writing a piece that relies on the history <laughs> of where I live and where I'm from in Essex County, New Jersey. So I like playing with historical figures. This time around, the historical figure is not at the center of the book, but very much connected to the novel's mystery. Well, we look forward to that. Do you have an ETA for it? No, no. <laughs> if I did, I wouldn't say it, but not yet. <laughs> well, Victoria, I want to thank you so much for coming on Book Talk and sharing the, the trilogy with us. Zora and me, The Summoner is the brand new book. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, thank you. Victoria Bond is the author of the final book in the middle grade trilogy, Zora and Me, The Summoner, which is published by Candlewick Press. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.